Hello and welcome to the Psycom JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communication approaches. Psycom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. At Psycom JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Today behind the mics we have the usual suspects, Sherry, Maria and Heather. Last Tuesday we had a very interesting Twitter chat hosted by Maria. Why don't you tell us what was it all about? So uh, we were discussing a 2017 paper that tried to understand how people's underlying morals and not just their attitudes would differ by a vaccine hesitancy type. Um, the goal is to develop interventions that kind of work with individual values. And this part, uh, article was published in Nature Human Behavior. It was titled Association of Moral Values with Vaccine hesitancy and it was reported on uh, the two survey studies they did with American parents uh, where people were asked to talk about their uh, vaccine concerns and they were asked a number of questions that measure moral values and I'll define this in just a second so the goal of this work was to develop more effective messaging so encouraging parents to vaccinate their children and the authors argue that better messaging would uh, should appeal to people's core morality so the moral values that drive people's attitudes and decision-making. Because research shows that uh, framing persuasive messaging using moral foundations can actually successfully change attitudes. So let me just really quickly clarify the terms. So vaccine hesitancy is really just that, being hesitant about vaccinating. And it can manifest in a number of ways. It's not just vaccinate or not. Uh, for example, a parent can be vaccinating their kids but express concerns. A parent can selectively delay or refuse certain vaccinations but be okay with others or they can refuse all vaccines. So this is where hesitancy types come in uh, and degrees. So a highly hesitant parent is refusing vaccines, for example. Yeah, so there's a lot of nuance and um, it's not a dichotomous yes-no situation. And moral values, um, these are defined as deeper intuitions that guide individual decisions. And the authors um, use this moral foundations theory to define the values. And there's six proposed foundations if you've ever read about them, it will make a lot of sense to you. There's care, harm, authority, subversion, loyalty, betrayal, liberty, oppression, purity, degradation, and fairness, cheating. And when I was looking at this, it actually reminded me of my own work on healthy perceptions, because I used moral values as well to kind of look at people's um, risk perception from technology. Um, so just so you know, the extent to which people use the six moral foundations and rely on them in their judgments and attitudes differs by people and it differs across cultures and that's known. So the authors wanted to see how do parents that are vaccine hesitant different from parents who are not based on their reliance on moral values. And the results showed that there's definitely a big difference. Parents who were hesitant about vaccinating were twice as likely to place an, a high emphasis on the purity foundation. And the purity foundation is the one that deals with um, disgust over immoral or unnatural things can, that contaminate one. Um, talking about not just bodily contamination, but also like morality and soul. So it's a rather broad foundation. And the other foundation that was very important 
where uh, hesitant and non-hesitant parents differed is liberty. So valuing individual freedom and liberty as well, resenting dominance by others. So people who were hesitant were again twice as likely to highly emphasize the liberty foundation. So this is all very important and interesting because we can frame now messages about vaccines to include these foundations to kind of guide people to um, accept this messaging better. At least it seems to work on other subjects such as climate change in certain situations. There's work on that. So the authors then argue that, hey, here are some examples of messaging that we can do that account for purity and liberty and would really speak to parents that are hesitant. So that's that. Yeah. So our Twitter chat focused, as usual, on uh, summarizing the article uh, for the first 20 minutes or so, and then we had the discussion. Uh, with, you know, with such heated topics as uh, vaccinations and, uh, for example, GMOs that uh, I hosted some months ago, I always wonder if the discussion will get a bit heated as well. But I noticed we actually had um, more participants kind of watching the chat and not necessarily engaging or commenting. They were liking and retweeting it. It was really interesting. Either people were really enjoying the topic or maybe they didn't particularly want um, to be voicing their opinions on a heated topic. I don't know. I'll hear your guys' perspectives. Um, but I believe the most active discussion happened before the chat when Sherry posted the short poll. And the poll was asking uh, people to vote on the main reasons parents refuse to vaccinate children. And the options were lack of education, fear of the unknown, religious beliefs, and lack of intelligence. And there was a good amount of kind of a little bit of pushback against these options and really great points were brought up uh, about how these options should be more nuanced. And it's a very complex thing to be nervous or hesitant about vaccinations and we should acknowledge that. Sherry, how did you feel about the discussion there? I thought that this version was fantastic and the poll did exactly what I wanted it to do to create a conversation <clears throat> about the wrong and right ways of approaching hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy and our um, attitudes towards it. So the answers that I chose was based on what I have seen all over the internet and talking to different kinds of people who are pro-vaccine. And this just reflects their points of view about reasons behind lack of vaccination. So it was like, a, if you like a mirror holding to the SciComm community, to the scientific community, uh, to think about how they are, their attitude is towards people who hesitate to vaccinate. Now in the, um, Posting, there is really nothing in here to say that if you have another point of view, you can't, that these are your only choices. Um, and um, if you look at the poll, we got 194 votes who chose one of these four choices. So that just tells, tells me that there's at least 194 people who should rethink the way um, they think about vaccine hesitation, that it's not all, it's more nuanced, like you say, and it is not lack of education, fear of unknown. There may be little uh, of these factors involved in it, but we should be a little bit more positive about thinking about these things. And um, people who didn't have a choice in these things, they spoke out, and I'm glad they did, and that resulted in a very... Um, contentious and interesting discussion. Interesting poll, actually. Um, because I was the one that posted originally 
um, it's, you know, it's complicated, which taken from like Facebook relationship status, you know, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, this, this, is, this is kind of a challenging, you know, it's challenging to find an answer choice. And I realized that Twitter only limits the, the poll choices um, to four, which is kind of hard. To, and that's hard to do. So you're working within constraints of Twitter. Um, but I also want to kind of just point out, because the reason I posted It's Complicated, which I realized kind of like set off a firestorm of responses. So um, I think I was kind of one of the original instigators for that, which which is kind of fun, actually. I'm not going to lie that being an instigator is awesome. Um, <laughs> but I think the, the way that I sort of approached the question is... Um, Instead, you know, the question was really like, why do you, you know, why do you think parents refuse to vaccinate their kids? Not how would you respond to a parent who refuses to vaccinate their kid based on the following answer choices. And so I think that there was some maybe confusion in terms of what the question actually was asking. Um, and so thus the answer choices sort of either weren't appropriate or didn't quite capture what the question was that people were perceiving the question was. Um, and I think that those two questions actually are they're a little different. And so that's where I think when we talk about like the nuances and the answer choices and making sure that we're not sort of like boxing people into some like very big kind of generalizations. Um, I think that might've been where some of it was coming from. It's not how would you respond necessarily, but why do you think um, that, you know, just very, very broadly. And so I, I think we, we, what we learned from the poll, in my opinion, is that we need to be really clear about the questions that we're asking and sort of how those answer choices relate to the questions, because that really determines how we're talking about this and also the scope of the conversation. Because what I noticed from participating in the discussion, you know, with the poll, um, and again, in response to like what the answer choices should or shouldn't be, was that the scope really quickly, like basically took a walk, it migrated everywhere. And so then we were talking about like the merits of autism and, and where this came from. And, and so it's really easy to sort of see, you know, with this example, um, you know, how this kind of a topic just grows legs and just starts like it just again, it just picks up speed and you don't really, at the end of the day, you're not having the conversation that you think you're having with somebody else that thinks that they're having some sort of a different conversation. So the scope really matters for this because it's really hard to discuss the things without constraints. So that's kind of what I took away from the poll. Yeah, but sometimes, sometimes it's not easy to uh, control the scope because the, the reason the scope expanded was because we had a parent uh, or a grandparent um, came in and started having a conversation and he started stating where his concerns are coming from. So um, I think I, I thought it was a strength that the scope was, um, was increased by a vaccine hesitant person because we wanted to have a conversation. And plus the question is asking when I review the poll, it says parents refuse vaccination for their kids due to. So the question is asking, what do you think is the reason behind it? So, um, so I really think the reason the scope went out outside of it was because of the questions that were asked by someone who was concerned about vaccination. Oh, I was gonna say that just adds to the richness of the conversation though. I think that that you know, it just was a really interesting example. And I think we can just use our Twitter chat or a Twitter, I'm sorry, a Twitter poll um, as a, you know, as a really good example of sort of the difficulties in dialogue around these, this particular issue. 
But yes, it was, it was great that we could get a vaccine hesitant person to talk to the scientific community and they conversed with each other. I, I thought that was the most exciting part of it. You know, and we had a person who was very uh, excited to be engaging with us, you yeah. know, um, but that's why the conversation even happened. Can I just say real quick, you know, sometimes I feel like science uh, is blamed to be too reductionist, but there's always two levels of analysis. And I'm thinking about every time we have a chat, you can be very analytical and look at the nuts and bolts of a situation like this article does, very particular hypothesis they're testing, right? And you can take a step back and look at the complexity in context. And as scientists, good scientists, we know both are important. We need yes. both proximal and distant analysis. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes people assume that because we're discussing the article just focused on this one thing, that's all there is to say. No, no, no. It's a little part of a big hole and we realize, of course, there's large context around it. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So what was the most interesting part of the discussion to you guys then from the mm -hmm. Twitter chat that we actually had on the you know, uh, I am actually thinking about my own comment during the chat that I made, and I'm still uh, not sure how I feel about it. So the authors gave several examples of how messaging can be framed with, uh, for example, the Purity Foundation in mind. Um, and it uh, said something like, you know, boost your child's natural immunity with vaccinations. And thinking back, so the thing is, I know how anti-vaccine folks feel. And that's because I was a hundred anti-vaccine in my uh, earlier days. <laughs> so if I were to hear that message and I already have this um, framework, this mental model of vaccination as a very unnatural intrusion to the body's defenses, I don't think that would work on me. I would be even more suspicious of the source of this claim thinking they don't know what they're talking about because my uh, natural you know, definition is so different. And I think of vaccines as contaminating. How would they change my mind just by using the word? Um, so for me, I want to see definitely a study with the experimental design looking at these messages framed. This was just an example from the authors. It can be probably done in all sorts of successful ways. I want to see if it actually shifts attitudes because research does show that on other topics, it can. So I, I'm really curious, yeah. Yeah, and I agree with you that framing alone cannot be uh, the only silver bullet. Um, so I, I agree with your assessment with you with respect to just reframing it into that purity message. It might not, it might not work just for exactly the same reason that you mentioned. And plus, people have different underlying reasons for being anti-vaxxers, and the paper mentions that and says the anti-vaccine. Um, uh, mindset is very nuanced. It's not a black and white. Um, another thing I wanted to address is having patience. It's, it's really important to having patience with uh, talking to anti-vaxxers or any kind of anti-science issue. There are people who came and responded to the uh, vaccine-resistant participant in, in the beginning. They were really uh, patient and nice, and they shared. Um, papers, links to papers, but then when that person started asking more questions, they became impatient. Um, mm -hmm. And they said, so this person then asked about food safety, and the, uh, the scientist said, well, I showed you something, now you're veering into food safety, she got annoyed. But if you mm -hmm. think about it, even if someone, as scientists, when someone brings in a new piece of paper, a new idea, we want to go and read the paper and we will have further at, uh, questions to ask. So it's really important to be patient and don't expect people to change their minds the, the minute you show them a paper that sounds compelling to you.
Um, yeah, yeah. And finally, Matt Nurse shared a link during the chat to a paper that disputes the backfire effect. And this is when you show someone data to change their mind, but it actually backfires and their beliefs become stronger. Um, but there's only one paper that disputes that. So I don't really think we can rule out the backfire effect unless more papers come out that disputes it. Gosh, there's a lot to think about. Um, <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, for me, I think the most important piece that came out of the Twitter chat was really about understanding the issue of vaccine hesitancy. Um, again, it's something as you, you know, we've already talked about is sort of this idea of like nuanced or there's degrees of hesitancy. And I, in my mind, the way that I think about that is sort of on a spectrum um, where you can be in any way, shape or form fall somewhere on the spectrum, um, you know, instead of the just the dichotomous option of your pro vaccine or anti vaccine. Um, which is helpful, I think, for ways that we can start to think about how we would even make small sort of, you know, small sort of changes um, using science communication approaches to start changing thinking even just a little bit. So if you're just shifting a little bit on that spectrum, um, you know, then I think that there, you know, that's, that's positive, in my opinion, even small changes to start with is, I agree. is an impact. I agree. And I think... And the interesting piece, you know, too, that I just want to kind of, um, I don't know, mull around on. I don't know what my thoughts are quite exactly yet fully, um, but the, the fact that there were, they found an, a generational effect, um, that they observed generational differences, which was really kind of interesting. And for me, there are certain people in my life that sort of popped up when I read this. And I, in my mind, it was just sort of examples of this, um, where the, the younger high hesitancy parents were more likely to endorse the Liberty Foundation, which leads us to, you know, leads me to wonder sort of, if we were gonna look at different differences in generation, generational effects, um, in terms of sort of beliefs on vaccines and sort of where the linchpin of that might be, and also sort of getting at in a way working backwards at some of those more concrete institutions that might be contributing to some of those beliefs or sustaining some of those beliefs, then maybe we also could kind of work backwards in figuring out how to create some sort of cultural or in-group science communication approaches that help to build trust for message delivery and for the messengers themselves um, about vaccine information for these folks. And so kind of almost as a, again, as a working backwards is sort of how I came up with that, because I do think that there are some differences, of course, like in how different age groups parent their kids, like, you know, there's a lot of information about that. Um, and sort of also just, you know, those of us that are younger, <laughs> talking to folks that are older, um, you know, th there's lots of conversation about you know, differences in parenting styles, um, but also, again, in terms of what the values might be for that. So um, those are just some thoughts that I had that, um, you know, came from, came from the article, um, just mostly as a basis for future research and where we might kind of approach this issue differently, um, because I think the moral foundations approach was an interesting one. Yeah, F. Heather, and you just made me realize there was another very interesting uh, result. So, by the way, the authors uh, tested a bunch of other variables like age, right? You just talk about like gender. The interesting thing was that they also collected information on political ideology, you know, more likely to be liberal, conservative. And the crazy thing is that um, this factor did not really impact the strength of any of the associations. So associations of moral values with hesitancy. And this is very interesting because actually the moral foundations theory originally focused on uh, explaining tribal political attitudes. So it's a really important factor related to this theory that really didn't matter on the topic of vaccines. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. 
That, you know, to, okay, to me, that kind of makes sense, though, because vaccines are one of those things that isn't necessarily, it's not right now, it's not a, a partisan issue. So for me, that yeah. kind of makes sense. But I think if we were looking at something like climate change, like, obviously, I think there'd be like huge partisan differences there. So you would see an effect from political ideology. Yeah, I was just thinking because of the Liberty Foundation, I would think uh, that would mediate that for some reason, the views on liberty and uh, authority, you know, but it didn't. So I was like, okay, interesting. Yeah, and in conclusion, I wanted to actually say something and share, plug in some really interesting information I just learned personally. So I thought this was fascinating and kind of relevant. Um, um, I've recently uh, seen a lecture. I, oh, when I was at Arizona State University, the Center for Evolutionary Medicine there does amazing guest speakers and I always go, they also record them. Nice. And recently I was watching one on evolution of path pathogens, which is something very important and something that uh, we should be really nervous about. We have all heard of antibiotic resistance, right? We know that bacteria can evolve around our tools and defenses very quickly, become stronger and deadlier, and viruses do it too, like the flu, it evolves so quickly, we can barely catch up and we fail most of the time, uh, or some of the time. But the fascinating thing about childhood diseases is that they actually appear to be evolution proof, meaning that these pathogens do not evolve around our defenses, around these vaccines. Um, so that means that it's even more important to rely on vaccines for childhood diseases to be uh, protective. They actually work and they won't stop working. So this is what, why vaccination rates should remain high. There's really no downfall to doing it from this perspective. What's our call to action for this then? What, what do we recommend for our SciComm community with regards to addressing vaccine hesitancy? Uh, you know, we often talk about, and the, as the toll talked about, the complexity of the topic, and there's no way one answer why people are hesitant. This is just adding kind of one important factor to the pool of factors we're examining and realizing that people's uh, deeply held beliefs about what's important in life, things like that, really do matter. And I do think that despite me thinking that the messages um, given as an example in the paper were kind of simplistic, the authors did say, it's, this is just an example. There's ways to develop better framing, and also not just in mess that people hear as in public health, but as practitioners talk to people to at least realize there's also might be the, some of these um, hesitancy based on purity, liberty, these things that we should at least address. Because as we talked a lot in science communication, many times people just need to be heard first to become engaged, right? We need to listen. So keeping this in mind that these things really shape attitudes as well. And so they have to be part of the way we think about communicating. So that's what I have to say. Yeah, I wanted to add something that, again, I want to reiterate being patient. Uh, changing minds is a process. And also, we should stop thinking. Um, it kind of it seems to me that the scientific community looks at issues like this as a disease that we need to treat, that, oh, we should look for that one particular factor and that one particular pill or whatever action, that one particular action we can take to fix this. But that's, that's not how it's going to work. Changing minds is a process. Just think about the way you as a scientist change your mind. Um, so uh, my call to action for the scientific community is just to be uh, more patient and maybe um, educate yourself, uh, as a lot of us had to do on social sciences and psychology and how people change, how people make decisions. There's a lot of research out there about how human beings make decisions. Lots of great literature out there. I think that 
for me, the most important kind of call to action is, and, and I agree with both, you know, Sherry and Maria, um, is we need to recognize that the people who are not sure, they're human. Um, and so they're, they're in that place of just sort of being, I don't want to say vulnerable, but um, I do mean that just susceptible to, you know, lots and lots and lots of information and potentially, you know, including, you know, information that's less, less than, um, so to speak, less scientific um, and less well-founded in reality. So, but I think that we need to always recognize that these are people um, and that these are real impacts to people that they care about. These are their kids at the end of the day. And so I think just keeping that in mind is really, really, really important. Another thing that came up was, which keeps coming, keeps coming up, is this uh, important factor of trust. First of all, trust in the source of the information. And another very important underlying reason for a number of people that are vaccine hesitant is their lack of trust in government. And the vaccine hesitant person that we were talking uh, to on Twitter comes from that space. I meet a lot of people that come that were, um, let's say, army uh, veterans, or they had, were in a situation where they had to deal with the government, where the government clearly lied. It is really difficult to get those people to accept data or research from the FDA. They just won't take it because they've been in a situation that the government has lied in their face. Yeah, exactly. And can I just add that when we're thinking about this, um, relying on intuitive thinking and emotional thinking versus being super analytical is actually very natural, you know? Uh, you know, Shari, uh, the system wants to sit too. So as we think about how wiring, it evolved in an environment where this kind of thinking made sense, environment of heuristics. It didn't evolve in an environment of big data and analysis and actually like statistics. We know how hard and almost counterintuitive it is to truly understand stats sometimes. So there's nothing weird about this. Yeah, and I think maybe in the show notes, we can put links to a number of these wonderful books out there. Uh, the Moral Foundation Theory book, and then um, uh, Thinking uh, Fast and Slow. I think that's instrumental uh, because yes. it only allows us to understand other people, but it also allows us to understand ourselves and catch ourselves making the same mistakes that yeah. we criticize other people for making. Yep, we are human. I think that's our that's our final thought. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting that we have to keep coming back about realizing this. <laughs> and Sherry, can you please tell us about the next chat? I'm yeah, really I'm, I'm really excited. We actually established a partnership with the European Ecology Congress. This wow. Is, yeah, this is a, a movement where it um, basically aims to push talk about ecology, uh, as they say, across borders. They have an annual conference and their next one is July 29th and August 2nd. And our own Nevena um, is going to re be representing us at this conference. We submit an submitted an abstract uh, so Nevena can go and represent us. And she's also going to be recording, audio recording for them at the conference. So this is our first major um, partnership and we are so proud of it. So the person, um, uh, who is going to, who has been a source of contact with us with the conference, Ruben Oliveira, he's going to be hosting 
uh, he's going to be a guest and our next chat and he chose i asked him to choose a paper and that's a very interesting paper where it talks about the fact that the media constantly talks about climate change but hardly ever biodiversity is covered in that conversation so the paper that we're going to talk about is our house is burning discrepancy in climate change versus biodiversity coverage in the media as compared to scientific literature. So the gist of the paper is that we need to do a better job of communicating this importance and significance of biodiversity. And I can't wait for that to happen. And it's going to be the first Tuesday in April at 6 p.m. Pacific daytime. That's all we had time for today. Thanks to my wonderful co-host. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at SciComm underscore JC to participate in our future Twitter chats. You can also read recaps of our Twitter chats on our website, SciComm.org, and leave a comment and get in touch with us. Subscribe to our newsletter to receive updates for all our upcoming events, Twitter chats, podcast releases, and summaries of interesting SciComm-y topics. Go to our website www.psychomjc.org. PsychomJC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. It is recorded by the PsychomJC team, produced and edited by me, Nevena Christozova. Our music is composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining us this seventh episode of the Psychom JC podcast. If you have liked it, let us know and please share it with your friends and family. Till next time and stay nerdy.